time we spend using our signature strengths, those things we're uniquely good at, uh, the happier we are, the better we perform at work, the, you know, the, the better we feel about ourselves, and the better we get you know, at our job. Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your ongoing host. Today, very excited that the former screenwriter, best-selling author Eric Barker is joining us from his studio in Los Angeles, California to talk about his best-selling book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Eric, welcome to On Leadership. It's great to be here. Hey, thanks for your time today. So Eric, this book really is kind of remarkably unique in that it's kind of a book of its own genre. I don't know that I've read a book that's anything like this. It's kind of a masterful compendium of demystifying, debunking, uh, false narratives, or at least narratives we've led to believe are true and have perhaps led our life around them. And I'm very excited to talk about the way this book has impacted you know, my view around leadership and life and career and even parenting, which we'll get into. If you might take a few minutes and tell us what your journey has been to come to publishing what became a best-selling book on basically all the lists, you know, recommended reads around the world, and kind of how you came to give birth to this great book. Yeah, it was weird. I was a screenwriter in Hollywood for a number of years, and then I kind of came to a career crossroads, and I was asking myself some big questions. Uh, and I didn't, wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I, I was looking for answers, and I looked for the place where I thought I would find some of the most legit answers. I started looking at peer-reviewed research. So when I started my blog, and after a number of years of blogging and realizing that a lot of the questions we ask ourselves about life, about work, about you know careers, the answers are out there. They're just they're just in in academic journals. And so I started putting things together. I started realizing a lot of a lot of ideas we had, like you know, nice guys finish last, and it's not what you know, it's who you know. A lot of these these maxims around success were only half true or not true at all. And I decided to kind of put the book together to, to make it a lot easier to, to, to put everything together where we could, we could see, get a little bit closer to the truths about success. Well, it's, it's a labor of love, right? I mean, eight years of putting together all this research and organizing it in an easy to digest capacity. I'll tell you, I read a fair number of books. As you can see from the set, these are some <laughs> of my favorite books. You have a place of honor right here at the top. And, right. and I really make a deliberate intention to read carefully every guest book from front to cover, at least once if not twice. And your book is unusual and unique in that it's not a sit down, in my opinion, and read it over a weekend. This is more of like a, a book you digest over, I would argue, weeks or months. I, I found myself wanting to read you know, four to six pages and literally setting it down and go living for a couple of days thinking about how have I believed that myth or how is that true in my life? Have you found others have said the same thing? It's kind of this chunked book that really has to be digested over time versus you know a night or a weekend yeah a, a lot of readers have written to me and said that they they finished it and then they they yeah. kind of wanted to yeah. to immediately start reading it again and i mean for me i think unfortunately there's a lot of business books that have one idea yeah. that yeah. could basically be summarized in a, up in like a page and it's repeated for 250 pages, and I definitely didn't want to do that. I wanted to, you know, really present both sides of the argument, you know, talk about the data, talk about relevant stories, and give actionable uh, information. 
So, uh, so yeah, I think there's, there's, uh, there's definitely a, a density to it uh, in terms of just trying to give people information they can use. Well, I think a density in a good way. We, we mentioned earlier uh, today that I, I kind of think it's four books in one. Maybe it's more, but as I read it, for me, it was four really kind of manuals within one. In one way, it was a leadership manual or guidebook. And then secondly, it was a, a career guidebook. Thirdly, I definitely see it as a life guidebook. And then lastly, and I know you and I have debated about this, uh, as a parent of three boys, four, six, and eight, it's a great parenting book, and I'll talk more about that. But what I'd like to do is in the next half an hour, maybe segment our time in those four areas. First, there's no question, in my opinion, uh, having some experience in the leadership space, this is a leadership book. You talk about a concept early on called the leadership filtration system. Uh, put some more meat on that bone for us. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was really interesting. When I was uh, exploring leadership on my blog years ago, there seemed to be two totally different uh, perspectives on leadership. You saw a lot of research that basically said leaders don't matter. You've got a team of A players, they'll self-organize. You don't need some figurehead taking the credit. And then there was a bunch of research that said leaders can be transformative. And it's huge, and they unite people and energize them. And it, was, it just seemed totally contradictory. And then uh, I stumbled upon research by Gautam Mukunda at Harvard Business School, which kind of resolved uh, this dilemma. And leadership filtration theory basically says the reason there's that split in terms of thought is that there's actually two kinds of leaders. Uh, there's filtered and unfiltered leaders. And filtered leaders, uh, you know, move up the chain. Like, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be CEO of, of GE, you know, you're, you're gonna get filtered. You know, you're gonna have to make it to vice president, senior vice president, you're gonna have to keep moving up. And basically by the time people get in the running for that top job, they've been so effectively filtered that they're almost indistinguishable. And that's why a lot of the research shows that, that leaders don't make big changes. Because again, once you move to the top of a big organization like that, they've filtered out anybody who's gonna do anything wild or crazy. But then you have unfiltered leaders. So entrepreneurs, or when you look at like when the, when, when the President of the United States has to step down and the VP who was, who was never elected has to take office, what, is, what, is, what goes on there and what you see is people who produce big sweeping changes. Sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're good. But if you look at things through that lens of filtered and unfiltered, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a system that's going great, you know, a company that's running well, you want a filtered leader who knows how the rules work and will play by them. If companies in danger, if they need to make big changes or they're in danger of going out of business, you're going to want an unfiltered leader, somebody who isn't going to play by the rules, somebody who's going to try big different things that can, that can lead to big changes. So it's a different lens to look at leadership through that can really be helpful. In fact, Eric, it's why I think your book also is a career book, and I'll get to that in a minute, but you really, you write about understanding who you are, and as, as a leader, kind of what is your own leadership journey, what is the impact you're having? I mean, if I, had I read your book, you know, 20 years ago, my leadership style would probably be different because I'd be thinking about, you know, what, which, which am I, filtered, unfiltered, do my talents and my skills work well within a public company or in a in a corporate environment or not-for-profit, I think there's a lot to be said for people identifying with one of those two and having a thoughtful, not accidental, right, but a purposeful um, path around their own leadership journey. I, I think that's a huge issue if, you know, because a lot of people who are, you know, more unfiltered, 
Uh, you know, they want to take chances. They want to take risks, uh, try and go the filtered path and they don't fit in. It doesn't work out very well. And by the same token, some people who are very much dot the I's, cross the T's, filtered leaders try and do something wild and crazy and they may not, they, they may realize it just doesn't really click yeah. for them. You know, they want structure and organization. They're not good at being a bootstrapping entrepreneur. And, you know, again, to have a good idea of where your strengths lie, where your natural advantages are, you know, that's, it's, it's a huge leg up to kind of be able to see through that lens and understand which environments you're going to gravitate towards naturally. Yeah, I think the big idea around the leadership book, within the book, if you will, for me was, although you don't say this exactly, you definitely inspired me to be more purposeful with my career, right? To really think about, you know, should I, as a unfiltered leader, which I am, be in what might be a conservative organization or a more liberal organization, or, or should I have been an entrepreneur? I think I've, I've discovered my strengths and I've found how to make them work in the companies that I've worked in. And I think I might have been an easier journey and in some ways maybe even more impactful had I better aligned my unfiltered style with employers that, that really valued that. And it's no secret Franklin Covey is uh, a renowned firm in terms of our thought leadership reputation. And we, I think, probably more value the filtered leader. And I'm a more unfiltered leader and I feel very valued here, but as I think if I could rewind the clock some, I probably, uh, would have thought more deliberately about what types of organizations really value my innate passions and style and personality. And I think that's really critical. Like kind of the, the, the more general formula for success that I set up uh, in the book is the idea of first and foremost, really knowing yourself. And then second, finding companies, environments, you know, that value, you know, the strengths you have, the resources you bring you know, that alignment, alignment ends up being really critical because a lot of people do think about their strengths, but they don't think about their environment or other people are really, you know, focused on getting to work for the right company, but they're not thinking about whether their strengths fit there. And it's that critical issue of alignment between you and your context that really allows uh, people to thrive. Uh, you've got to look at both sides mm -hmm. for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's move to that. That's a good segue to what I think is the second book within the book, which is the career book. Again, like I mentioned, had I read your book 25 years ago, and I thought I actually made some quite deliberate choices. And for the record, you know, I've had a phenomenal run at the Covey, Franklin Covey Company, almost 23 years. Wouldn't change that. I might have changed some of the roles that I took. Uh, talk a bit about, in the opening of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, you talk about the, the studies around valedictorians and millionaires. Talk a bit about that as it relates to, you know, kind of the success people have in career earlier on in terms of fitting within the system and such. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, basically, there's a, a research done at, uh, at Boston College where basically they looked at valedictorians. And, you know, everybody's told when you're growing up, you know, study hard, get good grades. And the truth is, uh, you know, valedictorians do well. They do very well. Men, they get good grades. Many go on to get graduate degrees. They end up to do well in their careers. But they don't generally become the people at the very top. They don't usually become the people who run the world or who revolutionize the world. And that is because, you know, Grades are a grades are generally a measure of of compliance, you know, of being conscientious, of doing what you're told. 
uh, SAT scores and stuff are pretty good at measuring intelligence. Uh, school grades are much, much better at evaluating conscientiousness. Can you do your homework, do as you're told, do you have self-control? So what you frequently see is people who are valedictorians, they do very well in closed systems like school where there are clear rules and you're rewarded for following the rules. Uh, however, you know, life's not like that. You can't be an entrepreneur in high school. You can't create your own system. Life doesn't have as clear rules. Uh, so conscientiousness isn't as valuable in life. It's valuable, but not as valuable in life as it is in school. And beyond that, uh, the other thing is that school really rewards being a generalist. You know, even if you love math, you have to stop studying math to study English so that you can get A's in both. However, in the career world, um, you know, if you're a fantastic uh, software programmer, you know, Google doesn't care if you're good at English and history. So you're usually rewarded for being good at being an expert, being really awesome at one thing, not for being a generalist at six different things. So school does not map perfectly onto life like that. Uh, so, you know, valedictorians, they do well, but they usually don't end up running the world or changing the world. They usually end up as, as followers to the people who do make the big sweeping changes. In fact, Eric, you don't define success in this book. You make it very clear that you know people have to define their own success measures. You spend a lot of your time just kind of presenting the the case and debunking or validating you know what is the science or the myth. And you yeah. also share a fascinating story about millionaires. I think there was a research study on about 800 quote millionaires to the extent someone def defines that as a success category, financial success. And I think the stat was that. Of the 800 millionaires researched, the average GPA in college was, I think, 2.9. Is that right? Yeah, and the, that was the funny thing was, you know, they, they didn't get uh, the greatest grades, but consistently what they were uh, praised about was having grit, was in terms of being resilient. Yeah. Uh, you know, people who are millionaires were very persistent. Uh, those are, you know, very powerful. Grid is a very powerful, not like non-cognitive trait, where it's it's not a measure of IQ. You know, it's a more of a, a, a more of an, a kind of an emotional mm -hmm. issue of do you keep going, do you keep persisting? And uh, you know, millionaires didn't have the the greatest grades, but they were people who who you know kept on fighting and kept pursuing their goals. In fact, Eric, I'll tell you, I probably read this section and reread it four or five times because. Mm -hmm. It, it came back to really my high school years as I thought about how much time I spent and my parents spent invested in Algebra One and June McGill. June McGill was my uh, uh, 10th grade algebra teacher. I took the class twice. I went through summer school. I had to bring home um, progress reports. I was always being grounded or in trouble for algebra when in fact I was also the student body president. In fact, I won that election with the largest landslide in the school's history. And I don't think at the time anybody saw, hello, he's not going to be a mathematician. Let's get him a C and get him on. He's gonna be a journalist or a spokesperson or a politician. And I think in many ways your book is like a parenting book because you talk about how important it is to understand what are your strengths early on and are you just conforming? And I've seen it you know, in my own life. Uh, talk about the importance of helping people earlier in life, even yourselves and your career, really get to know what are your strengths and how to align those with 
your passions and filter unfiltered style? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because uh, you know we talk about uh, you know people changing as they as they grow older and and in many ways uh, people do uh, definitely people become more conscientious as they age people become more emotionally stable as they age you know this has all been documented but for the most per part in terms of personality traits uh, you know like the like the big five for the most part uh, people's basic personality uh, you know even when they're a child to when they're an adult. Uh, is pretty consistent. It's it's surprisingly so. People would be able to identify some of the same descriptors that uh, friends or family would use about somebody when they're young would still suit them when they're older. So you know that to some that might be a scary uh, idea, but to other people, you know that at least that consistency. Once you can get your 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 mind around it. You know, allows you to really say, what will I be good at? What, what, where, which environments will I thrive in? And what's interesting is very often, uh, you know, we tell ourselves stories uh, because we have this uh, this voice running through our head, this kind of narrator uh, that we're we're talking to ourselves. One of the best ways to figure out, you know, what you're like, uh, really, is to do a survey uh, of your friends. And if, and if you can do it anonymously, that's even better. But uh, because your friends just see your actions. They just see your behavior. They don't hear your rationalizations. Uh, so to to ask your friends, to get a survey of friends, you know, preferably anonymously so that they don't feel like they have to they have to be careful with their words, you can really figure out, you know, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, you know, because when you hear five people all say the same thing who know you well, it's probably pretty true. Um, and research has shown that, that most people aren't that self-aware, but our friends actually know us better than we do. Uh, by doing that and by doing what Pete Drucker uh, refers to as, you know, as, as like kind of looking at the decisions you make, how accurate they are, you can start to see where your strengths lie. Those are valuable tools towards getting to know yourself better. Eric, your book kind of has me questioning everything I thought I knew or believed in life. I mean, even honestly, this morning, my 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 four-year-old who turns four in two days, he's having a big birthday party, and he came to me this morning asking, could he have some of his gifts early? And at first I said no. And then I thought about you and thought, okay, so why can't he have a gift early? I mean, who's to say that, you know, my kid can't have a gift before his birthday? And I, I mentioned that because you had me kind of questioning what should I be following the rules by? And what should I be you know, breaking the rules and kind of carving my own path in life? To, to that point, what are some of the common myths that you think you either debunk or challenge that most impact people's lives, perhaps for the negative? That maybe people have lived their life around wives' tales or false narratives that you might just kind of share a couple of them to say, rethink these and determine, is that working for you in your life? I mean, I think you know one critical one uh, is the issue of nice guys finish last. I think a lot, you know a lot of people do feel like nice guys finish last, and when you when you look at the research, uh, you know what you see is that uh, not being so nice uh, can be advantageous in the short term, but in the long term, it's usually disastrous. And that you know, uh, if people who the people who who do the best and who do the worst are actually uh, the people who are most altruistic. Mm -hmm. And if they just do a few things to make sure that they don't get taken advantage of, that they don't become martyrs, uh, those people are actually the most successful, uh, the most popular, and often the happiest. 
you know, takers, uh, people who try and get as much as they can and not give back, they do well in the short term. They, they don't do well in the long term because usually a reputation catches up with us. So people who feel like, oh, I've, I've been too nice, uh, you know, being nice is beneficial as long as you don't become a martyr, you know, as long as you're, you're, you're keep yourself in good environments where you're, you're not going to get taken advantage of. Uh, you, you limit the amount, you know, you do so that you can still do your own work and get things done. You know, it's, it's really important to, to not believe that, you know, that, that being good does not get rewarded. The research actually shows that, that good people do do very well. At the very top, right? Even. Yeah, they, they, do, they do very well. They, they, they score at the, at the top of success metrics if right. they just make sure that they're not surrounded by takers right. and that they're not doing so much for others that they, that they neglect their own work. Uh, two more concepts that I found to be kind of recurring themes was the power of being trusted and trustworthiness and the mm -hmm. power of networks. Would you speak to both of those as well? Yeah, when people were surveyed, uh, the number one thing they wanted in other people was, uh, was trustworthiness. And uh, also what you found was that uh, people who scored like uh, seven or eight, I believe, on, uh, on, on trusting others, uh, by far did the best. Uh, once you got to like nine, 10, some people could be a, a, little, a little too trusting and might get taken advantage of. However, the people who did the worst were the people who trusted others the least. So we, we do benefit by, by default more trust rather than, than, uh, than less trust. Uh, and also the power of networks is enormous, you know, is uh, you just see that, you know, uh, I, I document so many areas where just having access to other people, being able to reach out, having a good network around you is something that, that proves invaluable. Uh, and, and that a, a really easy first step is to reconnect with people that you've, you've already known, where it's not hard, it's not sleazy, you don't have to feel like you're, you're, uh, you're handing out your business card to strangers. Reconnecting with people is a, is a powerful, powerful way to expand your network, and they're people who are already friends of yours, so it's extremely easy to look at your social media profiles and reach out to somebody you haven't talked to in six months or a year or two. Yeah, it's a great reminder. Eric, I mentioned I thought that in addition to being a leadership book and a career book, that it's a great parenting book. And I've read a lot of parenting books. I, I would encourage every parent out there who's also a leader in the workplace to, to read your book because it will impact the way you help to steer and nurture your children. Uh, I'm a big fan of the work at Gallup around knowing your strengths and going with your strengths. And Dr. Covey, of course, our co-founder, has uh, had a great passion around identifying your values and connecting to your mission through a mission statement. So I want to reiterate that. I think for parents out there, it's a fascinating read to really challenge your own conventions around, you know, what are you believing to be true about your children? And are your children just, you know, focused on the valedictorian path versus perhaps the unfiltered path? Because as I, like I mentioned, if I would have had the book back in high school, which I think was a turning point for me, I would have made some different decisions. And I hope my parents would have maybe steered me and identified some things in a different direction. You've done a beautiful job of building this compendium of challenging what we believe to be true. And like many people, I just you know, sort of fell into the path of what I was told to do and didn't make a lot of conscious, deliberate decisions earlier on, became more deliberate later in life. Um, and I also think to that point, everyone has a little bit of entrepreneurialism in us, whether we have you know, kind of a, 
filtered corporate job or such. You popularize in your book also a concept called WOOP, W-O-O-P. Would you talk about uh, how that was kind of originated and work through that so people can be, I think, inspired by how WOOP can help them fulfill some of their own dreams? Yeah, uh, this is is really interesting. This is research out of NYU, and uh, basically, most people think that you know dreaming, uh, you know, is uh, that that helps us get to our uh, helps us get to our, our 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 dreams in life. And the truth is that our brain's not very good at telling uh, uh, fiction from reality. So you know, which is why TV and movies are interesting. Uh, so when we dream, our brain actually feels like we already have what we desire. And so you act, it actually reduces motivation. Mm-hmm. Dreaming is only the first step. And so that, that's where WHOOP comes in. WHOOP is kind of a, a great little way to help you take, go from the dreams and wishes you have to actually executing them. And not only that, it also, tend, it also acts as a litmus test to see whether your plans are realistic. And what WHOOP is, is it's an acronym for Wish, Outcome, Obstacle, Plan. And it's really simple. You just take, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're dreaming about, that's your wish. Okay, you know, you're, you're dreaming about, you know, a, a great new job you want. The second step is outcome. So to be concrete, to be specific, you know, okay, well, I, I, I want to I wanna be a vice president at Google. That's a very specific goal. And the third thing, this is the tough part, is the obstacle. What's in the way? You know, okay, well, I don't know anybody in HR or recruiter at Google. Okay, and then the fourth step is plan. Okay, what's a plan? Okay, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and I'm going to see somebody, who do I know who has a connection at Google that I could send my resume to? So you go through the process of just wishing, oh, I want an awesome job, to a specific outcome you're looking for, to what is the obstacle, what's getting away, and what's a plan that helps me me achieve that. That helps people go from general dreams that never never really go anywhere to something they can actually do. And what was also found with this research is that once people went through it, if they felt energized after they did the WHOOP exercise, that that means that the, the plan is actually a pretty good one, that it's likely to work, that they're gonna follow through. And if they felt de-energized, then it was the, the wish might have been unrealistic. The wish might not have been great. You might need to either change it, try something different, or think smaller. But the WHOOP exercise is a great way that we can go from dreaming to doing, and it's and it's pretty simple. Uh, that concept was new to me. I mean, not not the the formula was not the concept. How did you uncover the WHOOP concept? I'll just look at, looking through uh, lots of research and uh, and books, but I, I think that's a, a critical thing. As I, I find so often that explaining ideas to, to people, you know, is great, but what's that first actionable step? How do you get from the thought to the actual doing? I find that's one of the biggest gaps. So in looking and look in looking at that, what gets us to actually get going? You know, often motivation can be difficult, procrastination can be an issue. So WHOOP can be a powerful exercise. Yeah. Eric, finally, I mentioned, I think it's also a, a life book. In addition to career and, and parenting, as I mentioned, and leadership, it's a life book. You talk a lot about the power of your story and understanding your story. Would you expand on that? Yeah, stories are basically the operating system of the human mind. You know, uh, the story, we're, we're always telling ourselves a story. That kind of voice in your head is always going. 
and you know, there's tons of research on what, what you know, automatic thoughts. You know, very often, you know, we'll fail at something, and you, in the back of your head, you just might hear, "Oh, I'm stupid," you know, or something like that. That's your story kind of creeping out. Or we may feel, you know, like this was meant to be, that was meant to be. There's a story we're telling ourselves and it's evolving, but we usually don't actually take the time to deliberately think about it and think it through. And that process of story crafting uh, can, really be, can really be huge because otherwise, you know, it can turn into a self-defeating prop- prophecy. Uh, James Pennebaker, University of Texas at Austin, has done a lot of research on how just sitting down, 20 minutes at a time for a few days and writing out your thoughts, your story, how you feel about things has profound changes on, on, on people. And, and that our beliefs on our, about ourselves, you know, they critically affect it. When, when John Gottman, the leading researcher on relationships, how he evaluates, the primary method he evaluates whether a relation, a marriage will end in divorce is by asking couples to tell their story. Uh, whether a child knows their family story uh, is predictive of how well they'll do in school, whether whether they'll they'll do drugs, whether they'll end up uh, in jail. You know, the story that we tell ourselves is critical, and it's something we want to be mindful and deliberate about, rather than having this script running in the background that we're that we're not really aware of. You know, your point about knowing your story and the correlation between children and success—I had never really thought about that before. I would not have thought that was the predictor of success in life for kids, but I, I see it in one of my children. My, my wife's mother married a gentleman, a second marriage for her, who had a relation to Daniel Boone. And so this is my sort of stepfather-in-law. And my son now is convinced that his ancestor is Daniel Boone, not by blood, <laughs> but he's, he's gravitated towards sort of this adventure spirit. And I've seen my oldest son kind of become alive with this exploring adventurous style because he is convinced that his family history, somewhat true, is related to Daniel Boone. It, it perfectly validates that concept. Yeah, you, you see with, with companies, one of the biggest issues in terms of uh, morale is the story that a company tells. You know, it's part of the, the culture. You know, this is what we're like here. This is what, you know, we do. And in that same way, when a child has the story about our family, you know, this is this is how we do things. This is this is how you know this is what we do. This is what we don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of an ethos. You know that we we all you know want an identity of sorts. We all want that story, and it has powerful you know powerful effects in terms of uh, grit and resilience because. You, you want to be consistent, you know, in terms of your identity. When you say, I am X, you want to be like that. Robert Cialdini, who's uh, one of the leading researchers in terms of influence, is a powerful way to influence others, is to remind them of, well, they, they present themselves as X, you know, is what they're doing like X, and people want to be consistent with their self-image. It's a powerful way to influence people, but more importantly, it's a powerful way for us to influence ourselves, for us to say, this is who I am, these are the rules I live by, this is what I do, can help you keep on a, keep going even when times get tough. You know, as I, as I um, think about the book, th- this could be a multi-hour interview, right? So if anybody hasn't read this book, buy this book and then schedule about a half an hour every day for the next about year of your life <laughs> to digest it. I, I think one of the big leadership 
concepts I took away is, you know, a lot of companies hire for fit, right? Are you right in our cultural fit? And assuming that you get that right, I think an important role that you've identified and uncovered in leadership is making sure as a leader that you're cultivating in your team members their filtered or unfiltered path and how to work within the organization, how to find their niche, their voice, understand how to match their passions and talents with what their company values, because you can still color in the lines in an organization and still be entrepreneurial, but it's that understanding of the concept is what is my employer value and what am I passionate about? And you can have a great career in an organization that may have a different filtered value than you have, but I think you've put into context for me that as a leader, one of my many jobs is to make sure that the journey that my team members are on is as fulfilled as possible inside the firm. And if it's not right for here, truly, how do I help that person find their story, find their voice, and really perhaps go with their filtered or unfiltered path somewhere else, which is you know fine if that's right for them. That's an insight. I thank you for that. Oh, no, that, I, I agree with you. I think it's really powerful to that issue of alignment, you know, is really is really critical because if people feel that their strengths are aligned with the company that they're at, they're not only going to perform better, yeah. they're going to they're going to be happier, you know, and just all around, you know, the more time we spend using our signature strengths, those things we're uniquely good at. Uh, the happier we are, the better we perform at work, the, you know, the, the better we feel about ourselves, and the better we get you know, at our job. So it's really critical up front to think about that issue you know, of alignment in terms of whether the people around you are going to feel fulfilled, be enthusiastic, be excited, and be and being, doing something they're, they're good at. You know, that is a real critical lens to look through. So Eric, in our final moments here, you have had a great journey yourself. You are a successful screenwriter. You have a runaway best-selling book that's been out for almost a year and a half that's still doing extremely well. You're on our set today, so congrats to that. But um, what's next for you? What, what's next on the horizon? Uh, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still blogging away. Uh, my, my blog, which uh, Barking Up the Rowing Tree, yeah, same, yeah. Same, same title as the, as the book. I, I didn't get very creative there. <laughs> but uh, but you know, still blogging away and starting start work on the, on the next book uh, very soon. So you know, just, just trying to get out there, debunk some more myths, and help people live better lives. Eric, it's a gift to everybody. I think it's a gift that everybody should be reading in high school. Every teacher should be reading it every superintendent, every CEO about you know, understanding what's true and not true and what myths are we living our life behind. I appreciate your time today and maybe we'll have you back when your next book comes out and talk about the next topic. Eric, thank you for your generosity and have a great day today. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks, Eric. And thank you everybody for joining us today. Remember that today's interview is also available in a podcast format and comes out every week in a subscription e-newsletter and it always includes a a support downloadable tool and also a blog article as well. So we'll see you next week here at On Leadership. Thanks so much.